History session number 12, Rabbi Blyweiss, I distributed maps of the boundaries of the Shifteko, of the tribes of the Jewish people, of Israel. Um, I, I, I mentioned that these are misleading because even though it was done al Pigorao, the lands were distributed, the, um, and there was, in theory, territorial integrity, meaning like everybody had their land and you know, every, everything fit. The issue is, what does it mean to have a border? In the pre-modern world, you realize borders are theoretical, but not very meaningful. Borders are porous. You can't keep the other guy out. What are you going to do? Uh, you know, put up a human chain? No, we won't let you through. It, it doesn't work. The only time that borders started to mean something in any way in terms of security or some kind of a, a territorial legitimacy is in the modern era when you can do things like electronic surveillance where you, you can actually say, no, you stay on your side and we stay on our side and you can enforce such a thing. Even then you realize there is no such thing as a hermetic border. All borders are porous. Where there's a will, there's a way. That's why you're always hearing of all the various societies, first world, second world, third world countries as you know the Immigrants or the, non, the the migrants are trying to sneak past the borders, and not just the, not just Mexicans in the southern border of America, but really literally all over the world. You have people who are crossing borders, meaning that borders are only semi-meaningful. Well, in the pre-modern world, where there's no electronic surveillance, these were open. That's point number one. That's why, that's what I was going to say, that's why you go around and you've turned a little bit in Eretz Israel, you've turned maybe some other ancient places in the world. All pre-modern cities were had big, thick, sometimes what they call casemate walls. A casemate wall is like a double, a real, that's a wall. And a double, thick wall because you were afraid. We just saw it in Yericho. How, how they had these big walls, and that was the significance of, of making the walls come down, then the city becomes vulnerable, and you can attack it. That makes sense within a city. It's another reason why also, if you travel around some of the ancient cities, they're pretty small, they're compact. That was intentional. They built them that way because the wider you were, the more vulnerable you made yourself to intrusion to the enemy. If you were packed together, at least you had uh, safety in numbers. An exception to that, I imagine a lot of you have been on top of Masada. Masada is unusual as an ancient dwelling in so far as how spread out it is and how uh, they had the luxury when Herod went up there and built it, they had the luxury of really building a northern palace and a western palace. What's the shot on that? It's very relevant to this discussion now. The, the, the simple explanation there is that Masada is itself, um, its own, provides its own borders. It's not impenetrable, but it's pretty close because the topography itself serves as a border, in which case you can kind of, you know, you can kind of play around up there and not have to be as concerned as opposed to living in a place that's more, um, that, that is more uh, vulnerable to attack. Julian? Who made these boundaries? Oh, oh. So, so we saw, we saw, again, there were three times that there were boundaries. There was Me'ever Yardin, and here you have it nicely delineated. You have Reuben, God, and Menashe going from south to north, and that was already in the Torah. They, they conquered these, these areas from Sichon and Og, and then gave them out to the two and a half tribes. Next, we saw a division to the other half of Menashe, Ephraim and Yehuda, and finally in Shiloh, they finished off the other seven tribes, and the Alpiha Goral, by the way of the lottery, uh, the Goral doesn't have a good translation, they gave out the land of Eretz Israel. Now it's really 
questionable about this map, and I imagine you've seen other similar, have you seen other maps of the tribes of Israel? No? You've seen different things? And some of them don't look like this? Right? Pull out another map and you'll see it's not like this because it's guesswork. Our Torah doesn't come with pictures. I personally, you know, if I were doing it, I would have done the connect the dot version, but that's me. Uh, right? It doesn't come with exact pictures. So here, thanks very much. This is probably a little bit more, the, oh, the Reuben edition of the stone Yoshua, not the stone, the Reuben, Reuben Yoshua, right? The art scroll version of the um, book of Joshua has a different rendition. And I wouldn't trust this one either, even though it's probably scholarly more accurate. But we really don't know because none of our ancient texts come replete with maps. Do you realize that the first authoritative, halachically oriented picture, at least that we have today, of the base of Mikdash, do you know when it came about? And what we have in, what am I asking? I'll be more clear. What we have in hand as a picture of the base of Mikdash that has halachic nafkaminas, halachic ramifications, the earliest one that we possess today is from the Tiferes Yisrael from the, set, from the 18th century. That's, all, that's pretty recent relative to our history. From the 18th century, that's a, uh, over 200 years ago. Um, so, you know, these borders are a guesswork. Sometimes educated guesses, but for example, I have a whole piece, a whole developed piece on this. Look, for example, at Zebulon, the badly English translated Zvulun. Look at Zebulon. You'll notice that Zebulon on this map, Zvulun on this map, actually is pretty good because it has a, it has a sea coast. See that? Zvulun just north of today's Haifa goes out to the sea. Why is it important that Zvulun should go out to the sea? No, come on, think of Yaakov's bracha. The Zvulun were the merchants. Excellent, Arya. They were the merchants. Remember, they were in partnership with their with, with Zvulun's brother. Hello, hello, help me here. Yisachar. And then Yisachar dwelled in the tent. They learned Torah. And the Zvulun was the sea merchant. And they went to sea. But I'll have you know, there's some ambiguity in the Psukim. And there is an indication, let me just finish the thought, right? There was an indication in the Psukim that maybe Zvulun does not have access to the land in the end, even though Yaakov blessed them that they should be sea merchants. And this goes back and forth. Many maps, especially the more secular, uh, you know, like the Bible scholars, the Bible critics kind of app, they often draw the picture of Zvulun as being landlocked and having no access to the coast. And I think this is probably more accurate. I think, it, and I, I make an argument in my own sheer on the subject about Zvulun's borders, but my point in, in, is, is that these borders are something to question. Uh, another point is one that we've made in this class. Look, according to this map, how large the portion of Simeon that we know of as Shimon is in the south. I don't, that doesn't make any sense. Menashe makes sense. Menashe was huge objectively, but Shimon, no. Shimon became swallowed up within Yehuda. Yehuda, I would argue, is much larger and encompasses much of the area that this map gives to Shimon. Yes, are you? No, I'm confused. Why does Asher, Menashe, and Shimon have the vast majority of all the coastal space? All we know is, again, what we have in the Pesukim. Yaakov Avinu blessed Zvulun as being sea merchants. He didn't say that they would have Dan would have some of the coastline, although I should also point out that the area along the coast of Dan and Yehuda historically wasn't very Jewish. In the times, of the, in the times that we find ourselves today, do you know who lived there? I mean, today being, I, I, I'm again putting myself in the time period that we're covering, in the time of the Shoftim, who are the dominant, which nation is dominant in the coastline? Southern, southern coast, say it again. 
Philistines, known to us as the Plishtim. The five major cities of the Plishtim, we're going to talk about them. They're the big bad guys in this time period. So I take this map with a grain of salt. There's all kinds of things we could pick at here. On the other hand, it's also very helpful. Um, if, you're, if your geography is lousy and you're not so familiar with um, Am Yisrael and Eretz Yisrael, certainly in this class, we're going to be really focused on the geography. Eretz Yisrael plays a major role in the story, so you should have a working um, familiarity. You should know where the Dead Sea is and then the Jordan River that goes up all the way to the Sea of Galilee and know that, know that that area, today we call it the Jordan Valley, is, is central and on the on the left side of that on the map, which means to the west on the map is Eretz Israel proper, and on the east of that is a slight one notch lower level of Kedusha in the area known as Me'ever Liardain across the Jordan, which is the two and a half tribes. Other comments or questions on the map? Aaron, what are you, you going to, yeah? Yes, I did, and it's not depicted on this map. That's another, in, uh, that was, that's another, well, it's not inaccurate. This map reflects the initial division in Shiloh. And in the initial division in Shiloh, Dom was given a relatively small portion in the area today. Who's been to Beit Shemesh, Ramat Beit Shemesh, you have family there, so you've been down there. That region, a little bit north of Beit Shemesh, that's usually identified as Dom. There, and then out a little bit to the west, approaching the coastline, and I don't think for most of history reaching the coastline, but it was tiny. And when we told the story yesterday, we found that, as it were, the people of Don were kind of bursting from their britches, and they felt that this was inadequate, and that's why they moved north uh, into a region of Naphtali, and they conquered um, another area within Naphtali that's not depicted on this map. Yeah, Julian. Is Jerusalem um, No. Uh, Jerusalem is right smack between Binyamin in the north and Yehuda in the south. God is across the Jordan River, so he's not, that's not relevant. Um, but it's between Binyamin. In fact, right now, where are we standing? I think I mentioned this before. This is almost certainly Binyamin because we're north of the Temple Mount. And Binyamin had a, he just, the Gemara himself, he describes how it, the temple area itself was mainly in Yehuda, but Binyamin significantly reaches in and is, it actually makes a part of the temple area. So it's a really between Binyamin and Yehuda, uh, the holiest place in the world. God, actually their division has one thing of real distinction that Medrash tells us, um, who's buried in the portion of God? In theory, it should, be, it, should be, it should be right there in the portion of Reuben in the south, but do you know who gets burial in God? And it's a real place to most of and there's a reason for that. God, if you look at Moshe's brach of God, Moshe identifies God as being particularly um, um, valiant and fearless and, and, and having, here's a, here's a relevant term, really, bitachon. We had a whole schmooze at lunch around, around the topic of bitachon. God were noted for their immense, that's yours, it's noted for their immense um, faith in the Kaddish Baruch Hu, and therefore they merited having the tzaddik Moshe Rabbeinu in their portion uh, by, by, by just barely. Um, when we last left our heroes, we met the first judge, the first of the Shoftim, his name is Osniel. What was his major claim to fame? What do you remember? Do you guys want to test? Would a test be useful so you could like, keep track of some of the major points? No, I don't have it. What do you think? Am I crazy? Okay. Aaron does not want to test. I, I'm empathic. I hear that. If you feel like a test just for Hazar purposes, I'm not going to do anything with the test other than send it to your second grade teacher to like embarrass you. But other than that, I'm not going to do anything with these tests other than it just reinforces some of the, some of the major themes we're doing. You'll give me feedback as you, if you want or not. Go ahead. 
he was able to uh, solve all the terraforms. Well, be more specific. Off. They forgot 700 Dinim when Moshe Rabbeinu died, and he There's was able to re reconstruct them from Kilpul. There's only 613 Dinim, not mitzvahs, Dinim. Specific laws, whatever that might mean. <coughs> of the oral of the oral tradition. No. Medrash tests seven hundred but doesn't identify what they are. That would be interesting. And, and he got married because of it too, right? Yes. Right. He has an interesting wife. <coughs> he marries his niece. That's not something I cover here, but I'll mention it. Jews are allowed to marry their nieces. We're gonna see that's gonna come up in history too. Mortify. Mortify, Mortify marries his niece. Fitted Steve married his niece. What did he do that? Uh, Boaz, uh, Boaz? Boaz? Was married? No, not he married, uh, but, but they were somewhere. He was in the family, but it wasn't his name. Yeah. The next judge is a fellow by the name of Ehud ben Gera, who has a couple points of distinction. He's not as famous, maybe, as some of the other judges, but he's very interesting. He's, he's a very clever um, individual. Eglon, excuse me, uh, Eglon was the big, bad, wicked king of Moab. Big, big. Quite big. Uh, he was corpulent, meaning he was obese. Um, he came from, who's this, who's this, who's this, uh, who does he descend from? Eglon, son Moab. of, from Moab, who would be the king, who would be his father or his grandfather? Is there a question about that? Oh. No, no, Moab, Moab. Oh, so Lot, right there. Rhymes with you. Balak. Right? Balak would be, right? He said, Balak, 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 the sorcerer guy was Balak. Right, Balak was the sorcerer guy. So Eglon was, and Eglon has some very famous descendants. Well, he relates a lot to Who are, Eglon, Eglon has a couple of pretty famous daughters. <coughs> if you don't know, I'm not telling you, but it's a riddle. Nobody knows the name, you do know the name, at least one of them, but you probably know both of their daughters, both of his daughters. Okay, so same suspense. Be that way. You don't want to guess. Nobody knows the name of Eglon's daughters? They're really famous. Okay. Um, anyway, Eglon, what? Bruce. Okay, very good. And then the other one should follow naturally. They were sisters. Yeah, her sister who was also in the Yellow's Bruce. I'll give you. I'll give you a hint. Um, later on in the in the in the, in the uh, modern day, she wound up syndicating her talk show, becoming vastly famous. Oh, Oprah, yeah. Orpah. Orpah. There you go. Okay. Oh, that's different. Okay. Anyway, so Eglon, Daddy Eglon, was the king of Moab. And um, he was starting to give, uh, make trouble for the Jews. Anytime the Goyim make trouble for the Jews, in the, in, the, in, the, in the Tanakh, what do we understand from that? It's a Kaddish Baruch Hu telling us what? It's giving a, a slap on the wrist. He's saying, you guys better shape up. We had our problems, and when we, have, when, we, when we get problems, by the way, that's true in the time of Tanakh. You know what else is true? Today as much as ever. Meaning, if we got pro anybody here really familiar with the fact that in Eretz Israel today, some of the, we have some problems from the non-Jewish neighbors around us a little bit here and there. You know, um, I mean, honestly, at this point, you know, the Palestinians are, are relatively mild in, in, in the face of Iran and ISIS and uh, the, the the others encroaching on and and the Hezbollah now, Hezbollah now in in, in the Lebanon in the north, are have all kinds of they have they, they've uncovered that they have the plans all underway for the next um, war in the north. They have a whole new system, and, and you know that's what they look for: a few years of rest and respite to regroup and refund. And they get their soldiers all riled up. They get Israel this time. This time, a few notches higher with the higher technology. Anyway, when they when they send people like creeps like Eglon to attack the Jews, it's because we deserve it, and it's meant to uh, stimulate our tshuva. And Ehud ben Gera goes to the king, 
on the pretext, I'm going to bring him a tribute. That's what you did with the king in the ancient world. You brought him a present. So the king said, okay, great, come, bring me presents. I'm happy with that. He brings him a present. You know the story. It's a famous story. Now, he was famously left-handed. Any lefties here? He was famously left-handed, which was a, used to his advantage. He concealed. They, they frisked him. When they frisked him, usually people carried their weapons on the left because you could unsheathe your sword from the right hand from your left, right? So they frisked him on the left, but nothing there because he kept it on his right side because he was a lefty. And he concealed a double-edged sword in his right thigh. Uh, and when he was, when he was, he asked the king for a private audience. He had special message just for you, king. Uh, and the king sent the people out. And when they were alone, uh, he stabbed the, as we said, quite rotund king. And he had a problem then because, see, the sword got lost in the uh, immense quantities of fat. Um, that's the story. That's as you have it in the, in the Tanakh. The Tanakh is, is nothing if not incredibly colorful and, and interesting. And it's not there to entertain us. Meaning you hear the story, you say, oh, that's a great story. Go learn. Now that if you're not familiar with this, and I'm gathering maybe some of you are, some of you aren't. If you're not familiar with this, the way to learn Tanakh, you cannot just take out a Tanakh, even though I recommend this. You can't just take it out and read the translation. I mean, if you had a nice time, it was a good story, cute, I like that, fine. You should be familiar with the basic events. But if you really want to learn Tanakh, you have to open up Chazal. You have to have the guidance because the stories mean one thing on the surface and sometimes sometimes something totally different when you probe. It's always incredibly deep with meaning. Remember, it's being written, who's writing Shoftim for us, for example? We said this yesterday, who's, who's the author of Shoftim? Shmuel Anavi. He's trying to teach us Musr. He's telling us meaningful things. So um, here, the king's obesity is meant to convey his wickedness. The fact that the Jew got the better of him, um, and he get the, the sword gets lost in the in the um, in the fat. And pass these back. You guys can take these. By the way, I really do encourage you to keep notebooks and keep these. We'll be pulling these out, pulling out these and the timelines and everything else I distribute um, for refer as reference guides. So keep them, keep, keep everything organized. Um, when, this, when the sword gets, uh, disappears inside the fat, that's a reference to the danger that the Jews have of getting lost among the Goyim. Okay, pretty, pretty, pretty keen a metaphor. Ehud locks the door, flees the house. He flees to Ephraim. Uh, the, uh, the guards only get wise when it's too late and they break down the door and they find their dead king and Ehud long gone. Um, he goes back to Ephraim, blows the shofar, rallies an army of Jews, and leads a battle to, that defeats Moab. This is, for the record historically, the last time that the nation of Noad, Moab ever wages war on Klal Yisrael. Special ops operation, first special ops operation. I like that description of all time. And and um, from that point, here's here's a record. Ehud now rules. He was a young man. He rules as shofet over the Jew over Am Yisrael for the next eighty years, which is the longest period of any of the shoftim. And there was the longest period of peace, of tranquility that the Jews enjoy under Ehud ben Gera. And he dies. And um, the Jews, again, you remember the cycle? They start following the Canaanites. They fall into their ways. Hashem sends the Canaanites, or whoever it is, the big bag villain from next door. The Jews start becoming uh, 
start falling into their ways, and Hashem sends a shofet to save them. In this case, he didn't send a shofet to save them. Instead, Hashem sends a shofetes in the form of Devorah. Devorah, uh, who is a really unusual figure. We're not used to women in the limelight in, um, in, in history, um, which is an important point. And we talked about this, that the women really are the movers and shakers of the Jewish world. We call them ma'af sharot, they are enablers, which is not feministic. That's a put down, it's not a put down at all. They really run the show, as we saw Rivki Emanu, we, saw, we, said, we, we will see, and we have seen so many women doing this. This is unusual, but she was an unusual woman. She ruled, as the Gemara Megillah tells, or the Pasuk tells us, she ruled, she um, paskin shailas, but she didn't, want to take, she didn't want to take the male role of being a posek, so she deliberately chose a very modest tree called the Tomer. We have Perushim later on called the Tomer Devorah, uh, called the Tomer Devorah. Um, she read the reason, another reason the Gemara suggests that she chooses such a public place in order to take questions from people, from petitioners. It was public. It was public in order to avoid halachic problems of Yichud. Men come and ask her questions. She doesn't want to be secluded with them in a private place. You know about Yichud? Yichud is a prohibition. One man, one woman, uh, one man, two women, and various combinations thereof cannot be alone together in a secluded place. One man with two women is okay. One man and two women is a problem. No, it's two women with one man. Two women, excuse me, one man with two women is a problem. Two men with one woman is, is okay if. Meaning, it's not quite as simplistic as we're letting on. It's okay if. One of the ifs is all those people are considered sharing. They have to be holy and kosher individuals from people. If you're talking about non-Jews, or alternately you're talking about non-from Jews, who are what's called the opposite of sharing, anybody know the word? Trutsim. Parutz, prutzim, prutzot. Prutzot are, are often sometimes called, but prostitutes, but not just prostitutes. People who are immodest by nature, you can't trust them. And the Gemara there, where it talks about this at the end of Kedushin and Pei Gimel, Pei Dalit, it, it goes into, tells a bunch of stories, including a story of um, 10 men and one woman, and the one woman was dead. They brought her out um, for burial in a coffin, only she wasn't dead as it turned out. They just used that as a cover. And you can figure out the sort of details. The Gemara doesn't really go into great graphic description, but you figure out what was going on with the ten men. What's that? With Devorah married. Oh, you're back to Devorah and Mitzi Yichud. Yeah, I know, but I'm in the middle of talking about Yichud, so I'll finish my thought and then we'll get to Devorah. We will talk about that, but hold on. Let me just finish the thought. Uh, keep the flow. The uh, anyway, anyway, um, you have to be careful of Yichud in, in, in many combinations, including with not 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 religious people. Uh, fine. Uh, she wages one of the most famous wars in all of history. We'll talk about it now against the general Sisra of Hatzor. It's during her first year as the Shofetis. Um, and she too, really these first judges are really great. And you can tell when there's a long span of prosperity and peace that signals that there's, things are going pretty well for the Jews. After this initial famous war, there's peace for 40 years. We have this whole long chunk of time in the original period of the Shof team that seems to be very, um, very tranquil and good. Um, Sistra is uh, ferocious. People are afraid of him. He had, the Medrash tells us he had conquered every country he had fought. His voice was so strong, was so intimidating that when he called out, the most solid walls would shake. The wildest of animals would die. 
and people would tremble, everybody except Devora herself. Devora was not faded. She said, yeah, yeah, sister, I'll take care of him. I think you can take it literally. In other words, these agadita, these midrashim, are conveying a picture, but there were miracles in the real world. Why not? If you just get stuck in the story, in the Hollywood, the cinematic aspect of it, then you're missing the most important part. But there's no reason why we have to throw away the potential literal truth of this. He was a, a almost supernaturally um, a ferocious foe. Somebody, somebody who was, you know, formidable foe, and uh, Devorah was unaffected by it. And the Jews had what reason to be concerned? Is it something like uh, he was born with a natural gift of like crazy, uh, strong vocal cords, or is it like it just happened at that moment? Shem seemed to give him gifts. The way we're meant to understand that is a way of, of, of instilling fear in the Jews that they should make tshuva. Because that's what all this is for. When Hashem gives this, it's always to direct the Jews back to Hashem. Was it like in the natural way? Was it like he got the gift just like in those times there were giants and there were people with I think so. I think it was a natural thing. Strength. Correct. And, but but it, it took on supernatural proportions. Jake, you got here's a map for you. Everybody, everybody here has a map? Okay. Fine. Um, Sisra was a big shot, in his own eyes at least, and um, he had denigrated the Jews. He said, oh, you know, Kual Yisrael, they're nothing for me. And Hashem punishes him. Mida keneged mida. You know what mida keneged mida means? Measure for measure. As it all, always is the case, everybody gets what they, what they have coming to them. That's why we're all trembling before Yom Hadin as it approaches next week. Uh, not a little more than a week away because we all get what we deserve. That's why you should go. You should be at your best behavior all the time, but especially these days, and treat people incredibly well and generously and kindly because the way, the way you are with others is the way Hashem will be with you. Um, so Sisra was, was a, a, a big, bad, uh, threatening kind of a figure, and Hashem punishes him, Mida Kineged Mida. Um, he's disgraced deliberately by being pursued by an army led by a woman. And for, uh, I mean, it's not just in the modern day that the world is male-centric and, and have these attitudes that you were, you know, even in the post-feminist Western world, men still harbor these feelings of women. Oh, you lost a whoop to a woman. A man would have a hard time showing his face among his friends if, if he lost to a woman in an arm wrestling contest. Think that that is an idea that prevails even today, and that was certainly true back in Sister's Day. This was the ultimate punishment that he would go confront an army led by a woman and be defeated by it, um, and that's what the Medrash says. She herself, for her part, never tried to presume a male role. She was not contrary to what the feminists try to portray her as. She was not a feminist. She calls, she denigrates herself. She calls herself an aim be Israel. I'm just a mother among among Israel. Uh, I she doesn't want any display of authority. That's why she chooses the simple, to the simple Tomer tree. Wait, wait, what do you mean, what do you mean contrary to feminists? Feminists often portray Dvora as an early feminist figure. She broke the chains of male subjugation and, and emerged as, and she should be a role model, and we feminists should take up the cause like Dvora did and continue to do that and, and be basically like men. But what did she do that like? She try, I, I'm saying she, she broke from that. She tries to not be like a man. She identifies herself in Shiraz Devorah. In the famous song that she sings, she calls herself, I'm an Aim Israel. 
and, and she says it in a humble way, I'm just a mother in, in, in Israel, sometimes the right person for the right in the right place at the right time needs to take the position, and that's how Chazal understood Devorah. The Mishnah in Pirkei Avos tells us, "B'makom she'enish." You know this one, "B'makom she'enish." Ishtadel Yosisha. You should try to be that person. So I guess in Devorah's case, we say, "B'makom she'enish ishtadel Yosisha." I guess that's way that's way we'd say it. You should try to be be the person. And she rose to it, but she wasn't trying to make a statement. She wasn't trying to change the gender roles or anything along those lines. Ilan, let me. I know you're going to pick up in a second. I just want to finish the thought. She does this by by being very humble, unassuming. She there's a dialogue. She does have a husband. Um, his name is Barak, uh, as you well know. His name is Barak or Lapidus uh, Lapidut. Um, right, and she insisted that he join her in battle, and she says, "You know, you have to lead in battle." She says to her husband, "Because then they're going to tease you, they're going to mock you, and say that you, uh, you know, you were you were led by a woman." Um, and she only when he insists she reluctantly agree to join him in battle. But the battle, she's credited in the battle with having been the uh, vanquishing one. Um, the Gemara Megillah also says that oh, even somebody is great, and she's a great Sedekis. You realize that nobody achieves prophecy. She's one of the three Shoftim who's a prophet, and she's one of seven female prophets in history. Do you know the other six? Sarah was a prophetess. Miriam, Devorah, Esther. No, Rivka had Ruach HaKodesh, she wasn't a prophetess. There's somebody who's the mother of Shmuel coming around the corner. Hannah, there's um, not Ruth. Um, I mentioned her. She's also one of the most beautiful women of all time. Was also a prophetess. Abigail. Abigail. And the other one is a much later Hulda, at the end of the first temple period. Hulda. The Medrash faults, excuse me, the, the Gemara and Megillah faults Devorah and then separately Hulda for not being properly respectful of men. Men sometimes are faulted for not being properly respectful of women. Husbands, beware. We have to do that too. But they put down men, and that's why the Gemara explains their less than flattering names. As popular as a name as Devorah is today, the Gemara says it's not meant as a compliment. It says, um, it says there that um, Yuhara, arrogance is not becoming to women, and it uses these two women as illustrations. They say that um, one of the women called to Barak instead of going to him. She said, let him come to me, which was seen as arrogance. And so she's called by the name of a bumblebee, Ziborta Devora. Devora means a bee. The other one, Hulda, which is a, uh, a rat, a mole, Karkushta. She tells the man, she refers to the king as a simple man. The king is Yoshiao, and she should have referred to him more respectfully, too. Um, All right, so everybody owes somebody else, uh, you know, respect. Yes, but um, everything that happens in Hashem's world happens for a reason. So the fact that they were initially given those names is explained later on in life because of what they do. So is it really like it's, it's out of sequence. Right. You'd think that it would come after the fact that in Hashem's world, everything happens for a purpose. Sometimes he can preempt what happens by giving the name first. That's what's implied so here. Maybe so. Oh, that Bechira, for sure, but they chose wrong and Hashem knew that. Ilan, I cut you off. You were going to say something before. I was going to say that modern feminism would, would, argue, would say what you were saying. Would say what? That, like, empowerment of women is just a valid in terms of, like, she didn't think that her goal was to become a man. 
I accept that, and I think that you're right. I would, I would, I would disagree with both of us and say modern feminism now is not monolithic. There are different voices in feminism. Exactly. Maybe That's what I was that. speaking to was the early, original oh, feminist God. movement. If you know the names like Gloria Steinem, who said, who said in the early 70s, was one of the original feminist, um, a woman without a man is like a fish without a bicycle. That brand of feminism that really, uh, they project themselves as becoming men and, and, and usurping men's positions, it's that, it's that kind of feminism. But you're right, today feminists are very diverse and not necessarily of the, of the kind. I, I, that's a very fair statement. I, yeah, thanks. thanks for the qualification. Somebody else had something? Briefly about Dvorah, a couple more points. Um, the Tosavos points out that she was teaching Tyra, not Paskening. Possib that's a possibility. Uh, it also points out that the, she was unusual in history because unlike most people, and certainly like most women, the Shekhinah found her to be, to be such an unusual tzedekis that it rested with her. And as such, she played, she played an unusual role in history as a prominent woman. Um, Devorah and her husband Barak defeat Sisra, and his army falls. He doesn't. He famously flees to the tent of Yael, a great woman by the name of Yael. We said Rashi says Yael was also a shofetis, but this is her famous episode. That's yes, Yael Kini. That's right. She's related to Yisro. The story is she takes in this wicked guy Sisra. She feeds him milk. Milk makes us drowsy, and as there was, by the way, if you ever have a hard time going to sleep, it's really true. Try it unless you're flashic. Don't don't drink milk then. But but if you drink warm milk before bedtime, it tends to put people to sleep. Anyway, she feeds him milk. He got he does fall asleep. She takes the peg, the ated that is um, that that keeps the tent uh, steady. She takes it and she drives it into his temple on the side of his forehead and kills him. As a result, she's hailed as one of the great heroes for doing it. Pay attention to this story. It's interesting how so many stories repeat in history. Does anybody know what parallel story exists in history Hanukkah. much later? Yes, very good. Hanukkah. Do you know who we're referring to there? Ah, who, is, who is the Hanukkah version of Yael? What's her name? Yes, correct. What's her name? Okay, well then you'll just have to stay tuned, won't you? Also Yud. Very Jewish name. I'll just give you that as a hint. Yehudit, Yehudit. We'll tell that story too. It's got some variations. Anyway, it was. Uh, give me a second. Oli, 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 Fans, something like that. And I'm blocking off the top of my head. In any case, you see these stories repeating. That that's for a reason. We see a lot of patterns repeating in history. I think part of the simple message when we see stories repeating in history is we're supposed to see. Oh, this is from a Kaddish Baruch and there are patterns here, and it's, I think it's a tip that we're supposed to learn history and learn from history how to behave ourselves. <coughs> Sisra is dead, and this is a famous part that's very relevant today. Um, Sisra dies. His mother, who's wicked and cruel as well, hold on, you know, you don't want to miss this part. His mother hears of her son's death. She's waiting by the window. She finds out that her son is killed. And she has a visceral, emotional reaction. Anybody remember the reaction? What does it sound like? Anybody know this? It's really famous, and I'll tell you, it's very relevant. We're going to hear the sound next week. A shofar. We learn the sound of the shofar from Sister's mother. How does she cry? She cries like this. What is that called? Trua. 
Trua, it's the nine beats, the singular beats, is learned from Sisra's mother's uh, wailing. The fundamental facts of life. As time goes on, the um, yeah, a cry is just a cry. The um, yeah, she had a she had a uh, and from the from the gut, she had an emotional, as I said, visceral response for her son's death. Even she was a cruel person. He was a cruel person. How does one cruel person drive for another one? She relished his wickedness. She 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 loved it. And now that he was gone, she has this animalistic kind of a primal cry out. And the truth is, is all of us in our kishkas have a similar primal cry. Most of us, especially men, don't allow ourselves to cry like that, but it's in there. And here in the shofar blast is meant to register within us on that primal level. level. By the way, the shofar does. It's just that most of us are not usually there to experience it. You know what I'm talking about? Meaning, we go through the motions of religious life, and sometimes we're there, but often we're not even there. That's like the guy who dabbins. Um, you ever been there on, Shab- on, on Shabbos for Shmonastray? And the guy's davening Shmonastray, and he's going like this. It's very common. And he's like, you know, davening away, going through it, and suddenly he goes like this. <coughs> Shabbos, right? Claps his, claps his. Why is he doing this on Shabbos? Because he's not paying attention. He's in davening, he's standing before the Shekhinah Kedoshah, and he didn't even realize it. Okay, I know, that's embarrassing. Uh, right? And suddenly he goes like this, and he looks down, and he goes, uh, oops. Hopefully he doesn't say the oops part, because that's also a have say. Um, and, and then he has to go on and dive properly. We're, we're, we're there in the mitzvah, we're not there in the mitzvah. What, I, what, I, what I'm trying to indicate is that you should be there for the primal yell of, uh, that the shofar is meant to trigger, and it's meant to call out, you should make tshuva, you should, you should realize how precious life is. Sistra has a really interesting list of descendants, most famously coming from Sistra, who descends from Sistra? Somebody's got to know this. It's really famous. Maran Gittin tells us this. Also, Sanhedrin tells us this. No, no. One of the great stellar lights of the Jews. Well, you might not have heard of him. Maybe you don't know. His name is Rebbe Akiva. And he, he hails from the tribe of Sistra. This is the first but not the last time we're going to find this pattern of history. We're going to have from utter despicable evil greatness. And you got to ask yourself, and I don't want to do this right now. We'll, 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 re, we'll revisit this question. What, what's the what's going on here? What's shot with that? How do we find utter greatness in the form of Rabbi Kiva himself descending from a line that starts with Sisra? How, how does that make any sense that one can beget the other? No. How did he have? Benegarin. Rabbi Kiva famously descended from converts. So from the the pits, from the, from the pits I call out to, you have greatness coming from nothing, from Sisra, from worse than nothing. So it's a question, Jake, you have, you have an insight? You, look, you have that look at, you have that, I have an insight face. No? Okay, fine. If you, if you anybody have a shot on that? What do we do? What do we say? Well, Ruth came from, uh, Oh, similarly, Ruth came from Eglon. And David comes from Ruth. And it's a similar pattern. And B'nai Haman, Haman's descendants, and uh, the wicked Caesar Nero, his descendant is Rebbe Meir, and on and on and on, many, many illustrations oh, like this. Avtalion Shmaya and Avtalion come from B'nai Sancheirev, sons of Sancheirev, and many examples like this. What's that? Often not Jews, beginning some of the greatest tzaddikim of all time. Okay, we'll have to revisit this one. I just plant this as, as an idea. Um, Devorah rules for a peaceful 40 years. After her term uh, ends, after she dies, the Jews stray again. 
This time they're subjugated by the nations Midian and Amalek. Who does Midian come from? We said this briefly. No, Midian descends from. Oh, no. No, no. B'nai Keturah. From Avram Avinu, the one of Avram's sons, from the from Keturah. Who is Keturah? Another name for Keturah, the Medrash tells us, Hagar. Hagar. Later in life, Avram marries Hagar and has many, many more children in addition to Ishmael, including Midian. Amalek, of course, descends from? Mm-hmm. Amalek from Esau. Amalek from Esau. Right? And they both move in and um, are, uh, subjugate Kal Yisrael. Eliphaz. Very good. That's where Amalek comes from. For seven years, the Jews are subjugated. And Hashem, in the middle of that, sends a Navi. It's not, in, the, in the Pasuk, he's not identified. And in the middle, there's this beautiful piece in Shoftim where the Navi gives words of comfort, of Nechama to the Jews. The Navi is identified by, the, by Seder Olam as Pinchas. Pinchas, who may very well be also, according to a very standard exception, Pinchas also is known as Navi. So he's around and he's alive and he comes back at these critical junctions in history to give to give us solace and comfort when, when we need it. What's that? Yeah. Pinchas, as in like Parshish Pinchas, Pinchas. He's still alive. Pinchas is still very much alive as Pinchas. Meaning, meaning we meet Eliyahu much later, in the, in the time of the mid, middle, middle, early, mid-kings. But and according to the one shot, he is Pinchas. And he simply never dies. According to that shot. There's an argument. There's an ambiguity about Eliyahu. Not everybody says that Eliyahu was Pinchas. There's a very standard accepted shot that he is. It's the, it's, you didn't just hear it. It's Suki. That's Eliyahu, and he never dies. Let me make a comment on this. It's going to come up again in history, too. What do you do with that? What I just said. I just told you something that you should all be bothered by. And I don't mind if you... You, you, should, you should make um, faces that you're of distress and concern. Uh, no faces out there. Okay. You're allowed to make faces at me. Um, what's wrong with it? How, what does that mean? He, Pinchas was Eliyahu. He, he's not Eliyahu. The same person. Same person. What does that mean? How do we understand that? There are... There are these midrashim sometimes contradict one another. Eliyahu, when we meet Eliyahu, we'll describe this in more detail, is um, alternately from the tribe of God, from the tribe of Levi, from the tribe of Binyamin. Well, which one is it? And how can he be all of the above? So one way of approaching that is to say that it's metaphorical. He embodies characteristics from these different tribes, and we're not necessarily supposed to take it literally. But there's a line of chat that says, no, no, it's literal. And if it's literal, we can't have it always. So um, I think one thing we can say is that we don't necessarily know what all this means. Sometimes in history classes, this is one of my issues as uh, somebody who likes to give over history. Sometimes in history classes, I like to tell it as a nice, clear story. You know, with the beginning, middle, and end, it all pretty and entertaining and so on. My version of history is the messy stuff. I just want to give you as clear, I, I'm inter- interested, my emphasis is trying as best I can to be intellectually honest and to say it like I know, I know it, which means sometimes we don't, they're, they're loose ends. And sometimes it doesn't match up in any pretty or, or, or um, logical way. We'll see a lot of this as history, especially in the early phase of history, because there's, you know, the, the more, the closer we get to modernity, the more we know. 
So there's less mystery and ambiguity and contradiction when we get to more modern history. The more ancient the history, the more ambiguity and potential contradictions. And I'm going to try to, since our goal here is to be knowledgeable and try to be intellectually honest, we'll try to present, give the whole picture. Yes? What's modernity? Modernity. Modern days. As we get to the more in the last thousand years, modernity, it's an English word, the, the closer we get to modern times, the more logically, you know, more accurate I think we can be, even though there's no such thing as a purely accurate history. Um, I want to talk about one of the great judges, his name is Guidon. What's that? That's right. That's right. And that's why, I mean, really, the best... There's such thing as modern Do you know that there was nothing like this a few hundred years ago? Nobody told, nobody told history like this. Among other things, if you were a knowledgeable Jew, most of the things we're talking about here would have been olive base. Everybody knew all of this. Today, the Jewish world, ourselves included, are appallingly ignorant. We don't know much of anything. But this was just, if you were to take a time capsule back, 300 years and visit your ancestors and you told them, oh, in history class today, they'd say, what? Why do you take a history class? We'll say, well, we learned about um, Sistra and Ehud and Gidon. And they'd rattle off everything you've never known about all of these figures and they knew it backwards and front and forwards. They just, they were walking historians because Jews carry this as our legacy. We're, we're walking in history. Um, and so we're, today we're trying to catch up with that. Um, what started happening is secular, the Enlightenment, and secular Jews, a guy named Gratz and others, came and started telling corrupt, distorted histories. So that's when from people got in the act and started putting out their own histories. And so that's what, that's what we're trying to do here, too. We're trying to set the record straight and, and, and tell it the way you know all the Jews always were living and understanding all of history. Gidon is a fantastic figure. Uh, Gidon, the name, actually comes from tree cutter, which he was. Like Gidon, somebody who cuts trees. He was from the tribe, a great tribe. Anybody know the name of the tribe? Menasha. Of course. Uh, personally, that tribe myself. He judged for another 40 years. He has another name he's sometimes referred to as Yiru Baal, because he cut down the Baal. The Baal is one of the famous old idolatries, and Jews were starting to dabble into the Baal worship. Uh, it was the Canaanite god of Baal was a minor demon involved with the rain, and whether the rain came or not, that's what they believed. Many Jews yielded to its influence, but many did not, and they remained otherwise faithful to Hashem. And, 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 and Gidon got rid of it, and that's why he's nicknamed Yerubal. How close back in that day is it? It was like very difficult not to believe in an idol. Nowadays, Everybody here takes questions. It's a very good question. Did you hear? Uh, it's a really good question. Why, why did they? Why does it seem like today? It's a great question, and we're going to spend some time here. But I'm going to give, I'm going to, I, you, you deserve an answer now. So let me give you a short answer now. And we're going to flesh this one out. It's such an important question. Idol worship appears to us totally ridiculous. In these were really smart, uh, and not just smart. They were cultured people, sophisticated people. We'd be impressed with them. And they worship the Baal? What are you thinking, you idiot? How could they do that? So, two answers. One answer, we're gonna to get to what I argue is one of the, the most critical junctures in history. It's the beginning of the Second Temple period, and, it, and what happens there, I don't wanna to get too much away, it's a great story. What happens there, we used to have a, a powerful, potent desire called the Yetzirah for idolatry. 
and we got and, and, and for all kinds of fascinating reasons that were relevant to that time in history, it was cut off and not exactly destroyed, buried beneath the ground a few hundred meters from us today, where we where we stand today, and we no longer have that that desire. And since we have nothing in the world that's like it, it's hard for us to really understand what possessed them. How could they follow idolatry? It makes no sense, but they did, and it's hard for us to empathize because we don't have that desire in the same way. You know the way to imagine that desire? Picture your, don't picture too strongly, your most evil, passionate Yitzhahara and multiply that several thousand times over. And you get a semblance of what this Yitzhahara was for idolatry. That's the real answer, and that's why it's hard for us to relate to it. And the second answer is, the second answer is, what do we call, I have a whole shear on this, Rabbi Kiva Tatsky has a beautiful shear on the subject. What do we call false gods in Hebrew? Think about the name. What does the Torah itself call false gods? Think of the Ten Commandments, folks. What is the term for it? Two words. Elohim Acherim. Isn't, isn't it a striking choice of words? What does Elohim Acherim mean? Other gods. Why refer to idolaters, idolatry, patently false gods with Hashem's name? And the answer is, and it's a big, big topic, and I'm just giving you a, a very brief answer, because when people worshipped idolatry, and maybe they still do on some level today, even without a desire for it, at the root of everything, thanks, really, it's exactly right, at the root of everything is a sincere desire to, to, to serve Hashem. Deep down, don't forget, all of humanity is created with Selim Elohim with a spark of divinity. All of us, when we when we get you know, people, you hear like the New Age people with their crystals and their all their you know their, their their karma and all kinds of other funky things, and they talk about what I want to talk about human spirituality. What's at the root of human spirituality? Everybody's is a, is a sincere desire to reach Hashem. What is I, I, what is a It's when they went to Hashem and got distracted before they went all the way to the top. That's why often they worship the stars because the stars are part of the constellations around Hashem, and they got close. And be, instead of going all the way, which is hard to do because going all the way is abstract and difficult and requires a leap of sophistication, what they did is they got, they got waylaid into those things thinking that the stars that surround Hashem were Hashem. So those are two answers to an excellent question. And they started worshipping the Baal. And here's the story in brief. Here are the highlights that you should know to be a knowledgeable jewel. You should know to discuss who Gidon is. Here's what happened. It's from the sixth chapter of Shoftim. An angel sits under a terebinth tree called an Elah while Gidon is threshing wheat. The times are times of persecution. Midian and Amalek are, have subjugated the Jews. The angel comes to Gidon. He's a simple man. No, not prepossession, no arrogance about him. And he says, Hashem is sending you, and he calls him Gibor Chayel, you valiant man of war. Remember, Ashes Chayel? Gibor Chayel, you valiant man of war. You are going to go and lead Israel to battle against Midian. And Gidon has the classic, you know, like, who? I'm sorry. Me, we, I'm sorry, are you talking to somebody? Are you talking to me? He, who, who are you talking to? Are you talking to me? Um, no, he doesn't do He does not do, Gidon does not do a Robert De Niro impression. He says, he says, right, Moshe had a similar reaction, but Gidon is simply nonplussed. He can't believe that he's being addressed. Um, he says, he says, no, 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 I'm sorry, you must have the wrong man. He says, don't you realize I'm from the poorest family in all the tribe of Menashe? I'm the youngest in my entire, if my family's poor, I'm the youngest in my family. There's so many more worthy people than me. And of course, the more you resist, the more Hashem loves you for it. And we always love our, our, the humblest 
of our people. Every single rebel in the world, everybody goes against God is like God's favorite. He's not going against God. He's just, I, I, you know, he, he's so genuinely humble. He says, I don't think I'm, I'm right for the part. So the angel persists and he says, I know, you're poor, you're young. And Hashem is going to be with you. And all you need is bitachon. All you need is that, that key word, that faith. And Hashem will take care of you. So Gidon, Gidon, Hashem knows to choose wisely. Gidon actually is one of these rare tzaddikim. Genuinely humble, genuinely God-feeling and very cautious. He's so cautious, he wants a sign. Because he knows the Torah forbids false prophets and false judges. And he can't act on his own. He says, how will I know if this is true? He brings matzah, he brings meat forward, immediately swooping down from heaven is a fire that consumes the matzah and the meat. And Gidon says, okay, very nice, thanks very much, I'll <coughs> join. Um, it's not, he's not done though. He builds an altar to Hashem. He then takes his father's tree, uh, trees, and it's not just any trees, his father has Asherah trees, idolatrous trees, forbidden trees, he cuts them down and uses them to build a fire on the altar. How can he do that? He doesn't bring a sacrifice. He just builds an altar and uses to burn and destroy the idolatry on the altar. He doesn't bring a sacrifice. Um, the people in the town find out that he's done this and they're angry and they come to, to kill Gidon for cutting down the Asherah. They used to worship a tree. And they're angry that, that, you know, that he did this, and they want to kill him. And of all people, his own father, who whose tree it was, so you think the father would be riled up over it, but no, the father has one of the great lines of defense. I want to give you some of the famous lines of history, so here's one of them. The father turns to the idolaters and defends his son, and he says, Ha'atem tirivun l'ba'al. What, you're going to fight the Baal's uh, battles for him? He's the idol. He should be able to defend himself against a lowly person cutting him, cutting him down. It's a variation on Avram of going and, and cutting down the, the idols in his father's shop. Right? He says, ha to revum the Baal. You're going to go defend Baal? Baal is supposed to be the God. He, sh he shouldn't need human defense. Right, Jacob, actually. You know you said before where the, uh, the, uh, the angel came to him. And he said, I'm worthy of Yes, yeah, right. Moshe did the same thing. He, he did. Moshe did the same thing. You think Moshe was punished for it? Moshe, Moshe, Moshe pushed it too far. Gidon apparently doesn't. Truly? We still have to say, Let's say, let's say. One second. One second. He's in the middle. He's in the middle. What? Just like we would have to fight the war of he has to fight his own Yitzhara, but he has to know himself. So apparently Gidon is, a, is, a, is, a, is an exceptionally high-quality person. So he steps forward, but he's told him, he says, oh yeah, I guess that means Hashem really trusts me. And maybe I do have the character and the strength of character to do it. You want to cut down a tree, right? Yeah, right. The famous one was... Attempt to remove the bow. Yeah, let the tree defend itself, right. Yeah, right. Oh, no, so we let Hashem, like we can say the Hashem? No, because when we go to battle, as you're about to see with Gidon's battle, it's so obvious that Hashem's doing the fighting and we're just doing the motions, Ishtadlus, we're just going through the motions symbolically. Nobody would confuse that with really fighting Hashem's battle. Hashem's fighting his battle. Arya, what were you going to say? Um, Talk to that out of you. Say, what I was say was, Does anybody need to stand and stretch? 
I don't mind. You can, you can put your head down. It's fine. It's fine. It's, uh, the, the afternoon is notorious for this. Be comfortable. But if you want to stretch, by all means, stand up and stretch. Go ahead, Arya, go. I'm almost done with Gidon. We're done for the day. It's a broad question that we're going to get to. Let hold the questions we talk about the base of Mikdash because it'll be very relevant. Then we're going to have more, more, more material to analyze the question with. So we're a little ahead of ourselves, but it's an excellent question. I, I, I Midian and Amalek are encamped in the Jezreel Valley, which is north of here. If you know where the Jezreel Valley, mid Eretz Israel, I'm pointing. Ooh, we have maps. Look, look. Jezreel Valley is approximately where Issachar Menashe is. Right, so Midian and Amalek are over here. Can you see your maps? Just about over here across the Jordan. That's where they're encamped. Famously, Gidon blows the shofar, um, blows the shofar, and he sends for fighters from all the different tribes. And it's impressive. Many, many men come to fight Hashem's war. They don't want to stray from Hashem in the least. And Gidon is very careful. So he turns to the angel and he says, can I have another heavenly sign? Um, and so he says, I'm going to put fleece in the threshing floor. Fleece, right? The, uh, the sheep's wool. And I want to see if it's really supernatural. If there'll be dew when I come back and get the fleece, I'll see that the dew is wet and everything else is dry. And I'll know that it's from Hashem. In the morning, indeed, he finds the fleece is wet. It's so wet, he's able to squeeze the dew out into a bowl. That's how wet the fleece is. He asks for one more sign. The Malbim says not to test Hashem, but to see if his generation was really fit, if the ball had been really eradicated. And um, he says, let the fleece and the floor around it be dry. And then, you know, the rest will be covered with dew. It is. The miracle happens. And now he and his men assemble in a place called Ein Harod, which I love to guide because I do, I do all this when I'm guiding. Tour guiding is really fun, I have to tell you. Because what I do is we go to the place. I stand in Ein Harod and I reenact the whole story. And we tell this whole thing. Let me get through this story. Is it okay? Let me get through the story. Um, there are too many soldiers. And Hashem says there are too many. There are 32,000. And there's so many that people might think exactly through this question that the victory is at the hand of people and not in Hashem's hand. For exactly this reason. He says, get rid of them. And he can perform a very famous uh, way of selecting out the, story, the soldiers. First, Gidon, tell them to go home. And he says, anybody who's frightened of battling, go home. 10,000 remain and it's still too many. So then Gidon, you know the test. Everybody else know the test? He says, I want to watch you. I want to watch how you drink water. Famous, exactly. This really. I want to watch how you drink water. Okay? And I want to see it. There's water down, and today you can go to the springs at the foot of Ein Harod. That's where I guide this. And what I do is that we, um, I try to be creative here. I, I say, lift our cups in a toast to the men of Gidon as we do this. And he says, go drink water. Most of the men get on their hands and knees and lap up water like so many dogs. Only a few, a select few, about 300 counts them. Um, take the water up, I don't know if it was a cup exactly, but with a cup and drink with the palms of their hands, but I refuse to do that, so I'm going to use my cup. Uh, and they take the water and they drink the water, and he says, those are my soldiers, the Abarbanel says, it was a test of faith. People who fell too quickly to their knees and bowed down were probably too used to idolatry. Right, bowing down. We don't want them. The Malbim says, no, it was a basic test of Derech Eretz. People, this is a famous shot. The Malbim says, famous test of Derech Eretz. How do you conduct yourself? 
We're physical beings, yes, but we the physical shell contains the spiritual neshama. Do you allow the spiritual to override the physical the other way around? The people who put their head down to the water are, are reducing the physical, uh, their spirituality to, to mere physicality. When you elevate the water to yourself, you've elevated the physical to the spiritual, which of course is the mission of the Jewish world. I think the Baba Varebi, the Baba Varebi was very famous was very careful. We should all be so careful. Sometimes the dining room doesn't look so good. I'm going to make you all self-conscious now when you eat. But it's a great musr, great piece of musr here. He, even when eating something like soup, he was always very careful and meticulous to elevate the spoon to his mouth and never bring his mouth down to the soup bowl. You think, oh, what's going to happen to the shirt? I just got covered with soup the other day by eating, by eating uh, on my shirt, by eating the soup. Actually, I was trying to cut the onion. But, um, but he said, you know, eating is a classic um, activity where you could be animalistic or human being and you elevate the physical to the spiritual that's what Gidon's soldiers demonstrated just 300 so there should be no confusion this is clearly a miracle only from a Kaddish Baruch Hu. and listen to this battle it's a very famous battle by night they descend on Midian and Amalek Amalek Midian and Amalek are described as numerous like locusts it was intimidating but the 300 Gidon and his 300 men are not intimidated they carry a shofar, they carry an empty jar with torches inside, and they encircle the camp. And the army today, the Israeli army, loves this story. I'll tell you why. The Israeli army, oh, by the way, they do this, they encircle the camp, they throw their torches, they blast the shofar, and the vast number of enemies, Amalek and Midian, flee in terror in the middle of the night. It was a surprise attack. Sahal, the Israeli fighting force, claims that Gidon, Gidon's army is the first true militia in, in, in many regards. They cite the following precedents. They say it's the first time you have Molotov cocktails, torches inside of jars. The first time you have night raids, because in the, in the past, people only went out by day when it was, it was scary at night. And Gidon is showing pure Amuna, knowing that even at night, Hashem fights the battles. It's the first time where the captain, the sergeant says, follow me. Gidon leads his troops into battle. You realize in most of war the sergeant Hitler says, charge man and good luck to you. Let me know if you, if you win as he goes back and sips tea in his tent. Right? But this is follow me which Sahal really loves and uh, finally it's the first real evidence of classic psychological warfare. 300 men loud shofars, noisy amount um, of cocktails but they had nothing on their side, right? There's no reason that rationally Midian and Amalek should have fled, but they had to hold the thought for us. Hold the thought, I, have a, I, I just want to get through this, and I don't want to keep you too late. And we'll, we'll talk afterwards. Um, right, interestingly, that, that's what Sahal emphasizes, because in the, if you just study the Psukim and Chazal, we understand the whole event is a demonstration of Ashkoch Pratis, our principle, you fight the Yitzhahara, Hashem fights our wars. Even later on, after the victory, the men are so impressed that they say, Gidon, you be our ruler, you be our shofet, which indeed he accepts, but he says, he cautions them and he, he corrects them. He says, I'm not your savior, only Hashem rules you. And yet he wants to reinforce that. It's bittersweet. Uh, the last note on Gidon, the last note for today, um, Gidon, as a tribute to Hashem, collects the jewelry as the spoils of war, and he makes an aphod. He makes this... Like an apron, you know, the apron, the coin, the dollars and apron, it's kind of an apron, uh, kind of a garment out of the jewelry. And that garment is saved and kept as an heirloom and becomes an object eventually of idolatry. That becomes a snare to Gidon's house. 
it's tricky in these days. And come back to Jake, Jake's question, what is going on with these people? Don't they learn? And the, and the answer is, idolatry was all around in these days. And it started with a sincere desire to worship a sin, and it just simply went off, went ari, uh, went off. Gidon, however, is the shofar for 40 years. The land is quiet. And uh, I'll end with this today. We'll pick up on Thursday. Gidon has 70 wives. That's okay back in the day. You could do that. Um, and he has one pilegish. And that pilegish, he has the uh, bad seed in the form of Avimelech, who we're going to meet uh, we're going to meet on Thursday from Shechem. When Gidon dies, the Jews sadly, ironically, revert to worshiping the Baal. Okay, so it ends not well. <coughs> An illustrious life uh, ends on a sour note. Do you think that the reason why they worship idols is because they were set up like people like Molly? So, a Molly worships idols sure. today. The you know, the bad influence. You get subject to the bad influence and you fall into that. Absolutely, that's part of it. Right, so we don't have I, we don't have the old-fashioned idolatry. We have, let's say, the idolatry of gashmius, of materialism, of money. We fall into those things. Right, but not, not the, uh, as we say, the old-time religion, as they had it. Yishikoyach, uh, everybody. Have a wonderful time tomorrow. To, um, this, this evening, and anybody who feels like it,